This is Lex Kibernetica, the cyber law podcast by the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Lex Kibernetica. If cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin being the most famous of them, are to be a legal tender, they need to become a lot safer. And if they're ever to replace traditional fiat currencies entirely, they need to be wisely regulated. All this and more with our guest today. My name is Aviv Zohar. I'm a uh, professor at the Hebrew University at the School of Computer Science and Engineering. And I research a lot about cryptocurrencies. And cryptocurrencies have a lot of problems built into them. But first, what is cryptocurrency? Okay, so that's, uh, that's kind of a tough question. But uh, maybe the first cryptocurrency that appeared was Bitcoin. The term is usually used to describe currencies that are based on a blockchain. And what is a blockchain? A blockchain is basically a record that is shared between many computers. Uh, this is used in cryptocurrencies to keep track of the balances where all the money is. So what a bank would have on its computers, Bitcoin has uh, decentralized, uh, shared between as many people as are interested in having a copy of that. And that promises that no one entity can make unauthorized changes Yeah, that is the first step in guaranteeing that there are other requirements. So, for example, if we have a record of all transactions everywhere and I want to send you money, I, I need to make a change in the records of everyone else. So I have to convince basically everyone that I'm allowed to move this money or to change the specific record that writes that I myself have, let's say, a, a Bitcoin somewhere out there. And I want to transfer ownership to you. Transferring ownership means basically that I transfer the permission to change the record later. So you will have it. And the difficult part is that I want to convince all of the other machines. And we're not going to want to allow some of the machines to get convinced by this transfer and some others to think that the transfer maybe have went to someone else. Because that would be me using my money to redirect it to two different places. What is called double spending. Yeah, and this is exactly called the double spending problem. It's the first problem that you encounter when you try to create this digital currency that doesn't have a single record, a single authoritarian record, but rather relies on this large network of peers to manage its records. And this whole thing is based on the fact that people don't need to trust that one central authority because they trust the code and the encryption. Right. So if we had just a single source of the records, right, a single maintainer of records, they could basically do whatever they wanted with. Yeah, with, like with one money. day your bank says, oh, you don't have a hundred thousand dollars. You just have 50 and you'd have to prove that they changed it unauthorized uh, for no good reason. Right. And there's no way you can prove it because they have all the data. They've always had all the data or, or they can say, you know, we, you have a hundred thousand dollars. But we don't want you to transfer it to Ido, for example, or to some other entity that we're not interested in, or or we want you to uh, pay us a uh, you know very large fees every time you transfer. They can do a lot of these things, and so Bitcoin was basically created to break up this central node that you know central source of control and distribute the power or the ability to transfer money between all these other nodes. But this uh, encountered problems as Bitcoin grew. Yeah. So. So maybe even the first problem before Bitcoin shows up, you know, why, why was Bitcoin so special? The reason is basically that everybody can join Bitcoin's network. And so we have something called a Sybil attack that's possible. Sybil is basically a character from Facebook that had uh, split personalities. You can basically create a lot of personas on the internet, pretend to be many computers, 
And then you can try and convince the network by being, you know, by sheer numbers, the money went here or the money went there. Because basically any change that you want to do to the records, you have to get consensus. What does that mean? Consensus basically means uh, maybe the, the term itself means everybody needs to agree on the records. But uh, in computer science, the meaning is somewhat stronger. We usually use a term called Byzantine consensus, which basically means that even if some of the machines are behaving really badly and are trying to confuse everyone else, then we are sure that everybody who's well behaved agrees on the exact same data. So this has to be kind of a robust property of the system because some of the computers on the Bitcoin network might belong to attackers who are trying to steal money or divert money or do all sorts of bad things. We often hear about cryptocurrencies being hacked and stolen. How is that done? There are a lot of ways to steal cryptocurrencies, unfortunately. Um, they, they've taught us a lot about or maybe reminded us a lot about how computers are unsecure. So uh, our transactions are actually protected by digital signatures. The most basic way to steal your currency, right, your cryptocurrency, is uh, if I hack your computer and I get your secret keys, which basically allows me to sign messages in your name and then sign uh, transactions. Right, exactly. Sign transactions, request transfers to my accounts and give the proper signature because I stole your secret keys, which allow you to produce that uh, signature. That is possibly the most common way to do this. Sometimes I need to hack your computer to guess your secret keys. There are cases where people have been um, actually guessing secret keys in some sense, right? Your computer is supposed to randomly generate them. Sometimes there are bugs and the uh, randomization isn't as strong, as, strong as you'd like, right? There's, instead of picking, you know, out of two to the 256 options, you pick, you know, maybe one of the hundred numbers, you know, it's very easy to guess. You just go over each one of them and try that as a signature. What, what you call brute force attack. Yes. So if the uh, randomization is really poor, a brute force attack can work. And this has happened in the past. I think due to Bitcoin, there were even some problems, some random number generators that were typically used on, on cell phones, I think, and were discovered because people could actually steal money. And then there's the 51% attack. Right. And, and the 51% attack, basically, Bitcoin needs some way of saying the good guys outnumber the bad guys. The way Bitcoin measures it, if we can't count people, because you can create many false identities, is to measure the amount of computational power that you pour into the protocol. If you pour a lot of computational power into the protocol, you get to vote, uh, in some sense, more times than others. And Bitcoin guarantees to keep functioning only if the good guys have 51% of the computational power or more. And if they don't, you can launch a 51% attack, which basically says I'm voting and trying to confuse the system with my majority of the computational power. And then you could transfer all of other people's money into your account or change uh, transactions. No, that actually you will not be able to do. If I want to move money from some account to another one, I need to show a signature showing that I am the owner of that account. And even someone with 51% of the mining power can't do that. But a 51% miner can basically decide not to transfer any transactions at all, right? It's kind of like a very massive terrorist event, right, in the Bitcoin network. Imagine, for example, freezing all payments for a few hours or a few days, not being able to pay anyone. We had um, a scenario in Israel, um, I think a year or two ago, maybe more, where credit cards malfunctioned for a few hours. 
people were at the grocery stores, at supermarkets, buying stuff, standing in line, and they couldn't pay because they didn't have enough cash on them. And they ended up leaving shopping carts full of groceries in the aisles and just walking away from supermarkets. So if you think about this in a larger scale, what happens when we can't pay, when we can't receive our salaries, we can't buy food, right? there's no accounting anymore. And economic collapse is a very big deal. So this is maybe a very doomsday kind of scenario. Uh, I think if that happens, there would be steps that could be taken to protect Bitcoin. But people fear something like a more subtle attack. A Bitcoin miner that controls 50% of the hash rate or more can basically start to slowly censor certain transactions, not allow certain people to move money. They can uh, push out other miners and take away their rewards. So instead of just being a 51% attack, they become larger and larger and larger. So basically, they slowly take over the Bitcoin system and get all of the rewards from it and start to control every aspect. And we were back to a centralized system, which we were trying to avoid to begin with. And uh, another way to lose Bitcoin is the Coindash attack. Yeah, so Coindash was hacked. It's actually a company that was running an ICO. Uh, they, they were basically selling to the public their token in exchange for Ether that was supposed to come in. It's one of the other cryptocurrencies. And Coindash had their website actually hacked. Nothing happened to their Bitcoins or Ethers or anything like that. Just on the night of the ICO, and the attacker changed the address that money was supposed to be sent to. And people logged into their website wanting to participate in the ICO and directed their money to the attacker. So this just goes to show that... How um, much money did he get? Oh, I think he lost... Uh, I think it was around $7 million worth of Ether. The really surprising thing is that they now actually got most of the money back from the attacker. Uh, we don't know exactly how or why. The people on Coindash are not really talking about this, but I guess they somehow managed to track or locate him and, and, um, and convince him to send some of the money back. By, by that time, by the way, Ether has gone up in value. So I think they got back something was worth um, in excess uh, or maybe around $20 million, something like that. Another attack is the um, finding your paper wallets, the cold storage. Right. So, so the thing that people try to avoid in Bitcoin is to hold these uh, cryptographic keys on their on their computer online because their computer might be um, susceptible to hacks and uh, keyloggers and exactly so you you really want to keep your secrets off the uh, internet in some sense and off of your machine and your machine is usually connected to some network and can be hacked and as long as you don't need to spend money if you're just getting money or keeping money you can keep it on a piece of paper Yes, you can actually, what you do is you print your secret keys on a piece of paper, or you sometimes do it on several pieces of paper and distribute them uh, somehow around the world. And while, you know, we, we understand how to secure physical things, you put them in safes, in banks, you bury them deep somewhere, you know, maybe in your, your freezer, uh, maybe that's not such a good idea, I don't know. But, but the worry here, again, is that maybe a fire or a flood or something like that destroys your paper wallet or your your uh, physical copy. And so people try to... Uh, and in that case, the money is lost forever. Nobody can reach it. Exactly. If, if your uh, secret keys are gone, just like anyone else can't guess them, you won't be able to guess them. You're in deep trouble. So you have to really keep them safe. 
So people do all sorts of things. They kind of try to break the secret up into pieces that can be used together to reconstruct it. So if somebody compromises just one part, they won't be able to get everything. So there are a lot of these uh, attempts and very different schemes to try and protect money. And this is where large exchanges um, actually um, you know, try to put a lot of effort in. They, they have what's called cold storage, all the money that's kept in paper wallets. And they have a hot wallet where which they use to pay out of all the time. And that is usually connected to a machine, right? In, stored in the memory of a machine. And we've actually seen uh, the hot wallet of an exchange compromised just in the last few days. Um, there was a Korean exchange that was hacked. Apparently, they had a very large amount of money in their hot wallet, which is not really good practice. On the other hand, to keep paying out money, you might need a lot, a lot of money there and you can't just keep it in in safes around the world. So it's a real, real problem how to secure information. It's, uh, it happens to touch upon Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies because this specific piece of information is very valuable. And another problem is, as you said, exchanges that in a sense, if Bitcoin allows you to keep your money, to do whatever you want with it and have nobody else limit your uh, uh, transactions or control them in any way, people keep money in exchanges. People keep cryptocurrency in exchanges and the exchanges are susceptible to hacks, to inside jobs. They could even lose the, the code themselves. Yes, of course. So this is the real dilemma of people who are trying to secure Bitcoins. Uh, should I keep it on my own machine? Maybe I don't know how to secure it well enough. Maybe I can't take enough provisions. On the other hand, they, they imagine that an exchange would be much more secure because they hold a lot of money. So on the one hand, it's much more secure. On the other hand, there's a bigger reward to break it. So many, many more hackers would try. But we know now that if uh, somebody to a bank and steals the money, the money is insured. In a sense, it's not your physical uh, notes. It's the bank's responsibility to take care of your money. You just have a, an account, like a number there. But is it uh, the same uh, uh, regulatory, regulatory speaking if an exchange loses your money? Does it have to pay you back? So in the past, exchanges have sometimes just said, you know, we lost the money. We can't give it back. There's no way we were bankrupt. Uh, for, for banks, actually, this is a, this is the same case. It's, it's not really true that banks can always cover your debt. Sometimes they crash and fall and you're left with nothing. So in the U.S., for example, uh, accounts are insured by the federal government. FDIC insured accounts uh, guaranteed that some of the money, at least, would be returned by the government. Uh, but if uh, the entire system collapses for some reason, right, the entire economic system, that yeah, I, I don't know if even the government would be able to do that or if that would be meaningful at all. But uh, in Bitcoin, it's harder because there's nobody who would print money. There's no government, nobody to insure. Maybe the, you, you could insure your Bitcoins with an insurance company, but I, I don't know if you want to do that. Maybe the insurance costs would be really high because they're easier to, to steal or we've seen a lot of theft in the past. So one example of an exchange that, you know, did not give money back is, is the famous Mt. Gox example. Um, it was at the time the largest exchange in holding Bitcoins in the world. A lot of people were holding, I think, even millions of dollars there uh, per person sometime. And one day it turns out that the money was stolen out of there. The exchange is, is not able to, uh, to give out, pay out all withdrawals. Um, and that event was a very crucial turning point for people in Bitcoin, in the Bitcoin community. It actually caused um, people to request more transparency from exchanges, show us proofs that you have our money. 
and so on and so forth. Uh, this is still an issue that we're wrestling with in other um, areas and other exchanges. So let's speak about uh, regulation in Israel. Uh, recently, uh, the Israeli state controller uh, said that ministers uh, should not hold cryptocurrencies because of uh, conflict of interests. Yeah, that sounds kind of uh, strange to me, right? Uh, this reminds me of days where you weren't allowed to hold a U.S. dollar account in Israel. These days have uh, long gone. A, a prime minister was toppled because of this. A prime minister, right, resigned because of uh, his wife's um, okay. account in U.S. dollars. Talking right? about Yitzhak Rabin. Yes, Yitzhak Rabin. Um, and sure, so the conflict of interest could be there. I suppose if you hold Bitcoins, what I, I, I'm not sure what you do. You... Um, promote Bitcoin, regulate it or, 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 um, unregulated or unregulated, I, which yeah. is funny because you also, as a minister control money and bonds and anything like you have a car, you can't make rules about cars. Exactly. And, and the effect of Israeli ministers on the value of Bitcoin, which is a global, uh, cryptocurrency is going to be very minor. I mean, even if they, completely deregulate everything or completely regulate it doesn't I don't think it'll change the needle it will move the needle even one way or the other and what regulation do the Israeli authorities put on uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies so yeah so the area is still very unregulated which is kind of bad it means that everybody's unsure of what they're supposed to do I think the first branch of government maybe or authority to to react was the uh, revenue service basically stating that Bitcoin does not is not for some reason a currency it should be treated as as an asset uh, which means uh, quite peculiarly that every time you sell it you have to pay capital gains tax uh, you have a tax event every time you bought you you exchange bitcoins for something so you can't use it for daily um, transactions you can't pay with it. Yeah, it becomes much more cumbersome to use it for, for transactions. It's like a barter. I'll give you a sheep, you'll give me Bitcoin, and... Yeah, uh, then I need to think of how my sheep has changed in value over time, and if it's uh, gone up, then I uh, have to coin. pay taxes oh. on the sheep, and if it's gone down, I can get an exemption for the government, and this record-keeping is very tiring, so that would probably mean Bitcoin will not be used as a, as a currency in Israel if this is actually... Not legitimately. Out. Yeah, not legitimately. That's right. So on, on the other hand, we have a different branch of government basically saying uh, Bitcoin is, is, is not an asset class. It's, it's a currency and we should treat it as a currency. And it, that is actually the Israeli uh, Securities Authority. And th their job is to say, what is a security? Uh, really, what is a stock and, and what is currency? And they have a report that they uh, came out with recently. It's not, it's not a regulation yet, but they're solic they've solicited comments. They, they're preparing regulation. Um, and they quite clearly say some tokens, some digital tokens behave more like a stock and should be taxed. And others are really um, more like currency. They should be treated as a, as a foreign currency. They're just foreign to every country, not just to, to Israel. But... Uh, do you do you not understand the uh, tax authorities' uh, decision having a, a coin that is not controlled by the state or any state, unlike uh, re regulating other uh, foreign um, currencies, where you can buy them to to lower the price or uh, hoard um, um, foreign currency? 
Uh, this is not something you can do as simply with Bitcoin. So, I, so I'm not sure that's true. I think a, a government, if they wanted to control the supply of Bitcoins, can still buy and sell, and th- therefore take Bitcoins off the market or put them on the market and pro- make promises in the future. They're not able to print money, but governments try to avoid printing money altogether nowadays. They do uh, they contract the money supply in other ways. But as opposed to money, as opposed to other currencies, Bitcoin is something that even the transactions of are not regulated. If you get uh, a large sum of money locally or internationally into your bank account, so your bank will report it to the money laundering authority, which will investigate you. On the other hand, Bitcoin, you can transfer it to an account that is not connected to you because accounts don't have names and you don't have to show any ID to open an account. So in that sense, I'm not sure that it's even similar to, to an asset. It's, it's, um, it's an ether. It's, <laughs> it's, it's code. Right. So, yeah, that's true. Uh, I mean, it's harder to, to track Bitcoins themselves when for money laundering. The, the current approach of Israeli authorities and authorities around the world is, is to uh, ask exchanges to do the exact thing that banks do for regular money. If you get too many Bitcoins, the exchange needs to report you when you trade them in four dollars or euros or whatever it is. So this is a kind of applying regulation that we know into places that are new. So this regulation means that you can continue using Bitcoin as a currency in the black market, uh, unreported, but you cannot turn it into cash uh, to pay for things in places that don't accept Bitcoin, which is most places. Right. So at the moment, right, you, you can, of course, convert your money, but not anonymously. Um, and exactly this regulation works as long as Bitcoin is not successful. I mean, if Bitcoin is ever successful in the sense that you can pay with it everywhere, Israeli authorities and not just them, the American ones as well and Europeans lose complete control of, or, or, uh, of, or way of monitoring of where the, the money is gone. Right. They have no, uh, no knowledge. And is that a good thing? Because uh, a part of, of what uh, sells Bitcoin, the idea, is that um, you don't have a government or um, some authority that artificially controls the exchange rates. Uh, and isn't that a good idea in, in, in an ideal world? I would say first that the uh, anonymity of cryptocurrencies is still very important, right? We, we want it in regular money as well. It's called, uh, economists would call it fungibility. We can't tell two uh, different two coins apart from one another, basically. Um, uh, think about what it would happen if your employer could track what you do with your salary, right? Um, where you use it, how much do you save, you spend it. We don't want our privacy violated by anyone. So Bitcoin just doesn't know who's allowed and who's not allowed to look at, at our transactions. So it just tries to hide them from everyone. So it doesn't but, do but a what you're very saying, good job, right? Yeah, but what you're saying, I'll just uh, explain that. If I pay you, uh, if I give you Bitcoin, I know your address, your uh, account's address, your wallet address. And then if you spend it, I can see that. I can look into the records and see where it's gone. I don't, exact, I don't necessarily know uh, um, the identity of the next wallet, but I can tell if you spent the whole amount at once or you uh, kept it for uh, a year. Yes. Or, so it and enables a little bit of uh, privacy invasion of um, uh, between people who exchanged Bitcoin. 
Right. And other cryptocurrencies have uh, done better and, and kept more anonymity. So you know that money has been deposited uh, into my account, but you never know when it was actually paid out to someone else and you don't know how much and to whom. Bitcoin is still um, has some linkability of transactions because we can see all the changes on this shared ledger. Which is the basis for it being decentralized. Right. So th there needed to be a record. We just uh, didn't hide information on there well enough, I suppose. Bitcoin was the first version. Other cryptocurrencies that followed uh, started to do better. So in, th in that sense, the government is going to lose even more ability to track money as um, if, if Bitcoin is replaced by a cryptocurrency that's more private. Um, so, so this is a problem. On the, on the other hand, the very same technology that is now used for extra privacy, um, this is something sometimes called uh, zero-knowledge proofs. As it's one of the technologies used to give more privacy to, in cryptocurrencies. Um, can actually be used to better regulate them as well. Although this would require a lot of cooperation from, uh, from government into deciding what this regulation should be. And as we know, governments want more control of um, money and uh, the way it's, it's spent. Um, governments are reducing the amount of cash. In Israel, the government is um, limiting the uh, maximum amount of uh, cash you can use in one uh, transaction. If you have a if you have a transaction that's bigger than uh, 50,000 shekels, I think. Yeah, I think even uh, they're the, the limited. 10,000. 10,000 10, are being changed so, nowadays. So yes. you cannot buy something that costs more than 10,000 shekels with um, cash. You have to use a check or a, um, a money transfer or anything that is uh, more traceable uh, yes. by, by uh, authorities. Yeah, I think the main motivation here is is not to control money so much as to uh, try to be able to audit later uh, in retrospect. And the government, what it really fears is is too much money and too much economic activity on the black market that's not paying taxes. So it wants to extract uh, as many tax revenue from, from people and, and not take money from the nice guys who pay it and, and let all the other people just uh, avoid paying taxes. So so they want to track the currency. and. And, and moving away from cash is a way to do that. It needs to be said that Bitcoin is uh, being used in scams, is being used by people who use its advantages to um, circumvent a government uh, regulation or other things that are not allowed by laws in, in different places. But the uh, money that we have today doesn't give us the same um, uh, advantages that Bitcoin does. Yeah, so I think most... Uh, criminals that we we saw ended up using bitcoins didn't actually do it for the privacy reasons. It wasn't to protect their identity, but more because it was easier to transfer bitcoins. When you have ransomware uh, software that yeah. encrypts your computer and asks you to pay bitcoin in order to get your uh, files back, anonymity of the hacker is essential because if you had a money transfer and then you got your files back, you could call the bank and say, this person uh, blackmailed me, please cancel the money transfer. Yeah, so that would be the case with banks. But uh, actually, uh, there were money transfers used for ransomware before. Western Union. 
Yeah, so Western Union and other money transfer devices were used. Even you, you can even do it with a bank account if you withdraw the money before uh, transactions are reversed mm-hmm. and the complaint is lodged. So th- this happened. But I think if you look at ransomware, what people who write ransomware want is to get a high rate of, of, of people who would pay out of those that they infect. So as long as, as when it's easier for people to pay you, they pay. They pay more. Because if they had to get the cash, that would be uh, problematic Going for to them. Western Union is hard. Western Union also started to, to, to ask people, you know, why are you wiring money to, to, to so, Nigeria? So in, a sense, so in a sense, they're using Bitcoin uh, as a customer service uh, uh, issue. It's, it's like we're exactly. making it easier for you to pay the ransom. Exactly. There, Bitcoin has some infrastructure around the world. Think about it. There are ATMs, there are exchanges pretty much in, everywhere in Europe, in the US, in and Israel. And you can be anywhere in the world and get the money and uh, right. they, get, they get the Bitcoin. And then if you want to uh, 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 get cash for it, uh, that's a, a different story. But the Bitcoin itself is really quick and really international. Right. And, and we've actually looked at some ransomware payments that were... Uh, made by, uh, we, I had a student that came into my office and said, you know, my mom's computer was hacked. Here's the payment uh, that I, I, I need to, be, to do. What, what is it? So I explained to him what, what, what was asked of him. I told him, you know, it's your decision if you pay or not, but if you do, please show me the address. And following the address from there, we found a lot of ransomware payments that we could track because as we, as we said before, Bitcoin payments can be tracked to some degree. And we could actually know where all of them went. All of them went into an exchange in Russia, and we could identify it. So there was no attempt, at, you know, no fancy attempt to hide where the money is going. It was pretty straightforward to see it all went there. And 99.9% of the money actually ended up in this account in a Russian exchange. So if you did have uh, authorities go to that exchange and ask, who's this person that, that's collecting money, they could have arrested someone. Um, unfortunately, law enforcement in Russia doesn't always cooperate with, with such requests. The operator of this exchange, which is called BTCE, by the way, which was called BTCE, was, was arrested actually when he left Russia. He was uh, picked up in Cyprus and then later extradited to the U.S. Because he was um, enabling a, um, a scam? He was enabling a lot of illegal activity with Bitcoins. There, a lot of money was being funneled into this one specific place where they let you open an anonymous account and not identify it on, on purpose, right? They, they refused to identify the, the people who opened the accounts. And so they had money from that Mt. Gox theft going to them. And they had a lot of the ransomware money going to them and a lot of other scams. So uh, closing that exchange was a very big step. Um, to, uh, I guess, a more global prevention of crime through Bitcoin. And uh, going back to regulation, what regulation would you uh, consider smart and forward-looking regarding uh, cryptocurrencies? So that's a very hard question. Cryptocurrencies in their current form, I I think I've argued if they succeed, then they would be very hard to regulate. They would be nearly anonymous there's no way to to control who gets them and where they do. You know, they they live on the internet, so they don't kind of stop at the border to get. Them. You know, you don't get to ask questions when they cross your border. So um, one of the things you could do is you could try and integrate this technology of zero knowledge proofs into cryptocurrencies. This so is basically it would allow you to create a proof and say, I have money. I don't reveal which money it is. I keep my privacy. 
but it did not come from one of these bad sources or it did not go to one of these illicit sources that were I'm not supposed to send money like I did not pay terrorists in Iran um, I I did pay to people on this whitelist without revealing who so I can create these cryptographic proofs that show that, that my money came from uh, maybe a whitelist or went to a whitelist of addresses without revealing how much money without revealing uh, anything else or or if I have money that I do receive from somewhere I can always say you know the amount did not exceed 10,000 shekels and if it did exceed 10,000 shekels I I notified um, the proper authorities so this is integrating regulation and old um, traditional rules into the cryptocurrency yes uh, exactly and and the idea here is that you can do this using technologies that still allow you to keep your privacy your uh, proofs are issued voluntarily on your behalf this fancy cryptography basically says you cannot lie you cannot create a proof of of having paid taxes on something when you haven't and on the other hand, so, so so that should satisfy the government, but but you get the bonuses of using this digital currency, you keep, you maintain your anonymity and so on. So th- this system isn't in place anywhere. We don't see it being currently built, but it could be like this, this very nice utopian future of what regulation could be like. Do you think governments can take Bitcoin down? Uh, yes, I think definitely governments can take Bitcoin down if they wanted. Right, we discussed the 51% attack. Um, that's one way to bring Bitcoin down. It's a bit expensive because you have to buy a lot of computing power to match the amount of computing power on the Bitcoin network and then launch this attack. There are other ways that, that our research kind of shows that are useful if you wanted to attack the currency. You could, for example, attack the networking layer. One way is to disrupt traffic on the internet. All of these machines that are running the Bitcoin protocol need to be connected on the internet to start to break them up into components that are disconnected, basically like clusters of computers, then each one, each individual cluster of computers that's only talking to to other members in the same cluster is unable to confirm transactions that are going on elsewhere. So there's a big mess in the system. And governments, uh, more than anyone else, have the power to to control internet activity going in and out of their regions. And specifically, the U.S. controls quite a lot of traffic uh, that's going on. Uh, U.S., Europe, and etc. Com- large companies like AT&T, for example, can decide to disrupt Bitcoin if they want it just by disrupting communication. Uh, and let's end this conversation with uh, your woes with uh, Bitcoin regulation. Yeah, so a lot of my thinking on this actually evolved from our own attempt to buy and sell bitcoins we had some money in the grant we used to buy a little bit of bitcoins it uh, was unused for for different reasons for for quite a while and appreciated in value of maybe around 35 times what we paid for it so uh, at some point we got a little bit nervous and we tried to sell it and we wanted the money to go to the university's account now because there's no real regulation or no, no, the rules are not really set in Israel as, as to what you're supposed to do. Everybody's being very, very cautious. It took us months to actually make the sale. Had to give a lot of documents from the Hebrew University. We had to explain everything to the bank and so on. So everybody's just being super careful because the regulator might show up later and say that, you know, you're, you're we're laundering money. And everyone's kind of covering themselves. So um, that kind of showed us what is the cost of not having regulation in place. Um, it basically means the fees that we had to pay 
to the exchange, to the, to the bank, everything was higher, and it took a lot of our time and efforts. Professor Aviv Zohar, thank you very much. Thanks. It was great being here. This podcast was produced for the Hebrew University of Jerusalem Cybersecurity Research Center. I'm Ido Kainan, and see you in cyberspace. This was Lex Kibernetica. Lex Kibernetica. More episodes are available at the Hebrew University Cybersecurity Research Center site at csrcl.huji.ac.il. Produced by Podcastico. Podcastico. 2018.